Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Ravi Sood, who's chairman of Galini Gold, a gold producer and explorer with mining operations and exploration tenements in Botswana, South Africa and the US. Um, Ravi's an entrepreneur with many business interests. So it would be good to hear more about Galini Gold and their future prospects um, and other interests that Ravi is pursuing um, within the mining and resources industry. So that's welcome, Ravi, to the podcast. How are you doing, Ravi? Fantastic. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, and I appreciate your time as well. So you've obviously got quite an interesting background. You're an entrepreneur. Um, I wanted to even give our audience um, a background of, of, your, of your career, um, going back to probably when, when you studied and how you sort of maneuvered your way through your career to where you are today. Um, and then we can obviously speak about more about Galini Gold and other other subjects after. Uh, absolutely, I'd love to, and, and maybe I'll even uh, kind of try and focus it on on uh, how all that led led me to the mining industry, uh, which yeah. uh, I, I certainly didn't start there or intend to end up in the mining industry, but uh, the events uh, conspired to, to bring me here. So. I, my my educational background is in mathematics. Uh, uh, by training, I'm a mathematician and, and uh, computer scientist. Um, did a degree in, in math and computer science, uh, also classical history, but uh, and intended to go to graduate school for, for mathematics. Um, and uh, I ended up deferring my admission by a year on graduate school. And... Uh, uh, sort of a strange sequence of events led me to uh, working. Trying to, uh, the the deferral was related to personal financial reasons. I, I couldn't uh, put together the funding package uh, that I needed uh, to take me through all the way through graduate school. So I deferred by a year, and uh, through a lucky set of circumstances, as as uh, sometimes the universe uh, the balls bounce in your favor, um, I, I came to work for a former professor. Uh, who I'd done some work with in the past on the trading floor of Deutsche Bank. It was Deutsche Morgan Renfall at the time. This was the late 90s. Uh, and uh, that was not something I had any sort of previous interest in or background in. Uh, I was very academic, uh, academically focused. My path was to become a professor, or so I thought. Um, and this was, a, this was a detour in order to make a few bucks uh, so I could uh, get back to my uh, studies and, and get on to graduate school. And uh, as luck would have it, uh, a few months into uh, that, some what was intended to be a temporary work position there, uh, yes, I did start to get interested and in, in, in got a bit of the uh, flavor for trading in the investment industry. Uh, but we all got let go, or, or almost the entire team uh, in Canada and Deutsche Morgan Grenfell got let go on the trading side uh, due to due to a variety of reasons at the parent company and Asian financial crisis, 1997, that sort of thing. And uh, and that took me to uh, again. I thought very temporarily working for a family office in Toronto, a family investment office, 
And uh, one thing led to another, <clears throat> and I ended up not going to graduate school. I stayed with that group. It was called Lawrence and Company. Uh, and that was, uh, you could say that's the only job I've ever had. <laughs> and uh, things just sprang from there. Uh, but, uh, and I spent the next uh, 13 years in the investment industry, ultimately uh, as a chief ex executive officer uh, of the asset management company that sprung out of uh, this family office. Uh, which which I sold now 11 years ago to a, a public company, a larger financial institution, and moved on to more entrepreneurial activities, uh, specifically mining. But uh, just take dialing it back and take you on my journey. I remember uh, in the 90s, as I started to take uh, meetings with different companies that would come through our office, pitching us, buy our shares, invest in our financing, that sort of thing. Uh, occasionally, not that often, as this was the 90s and this, these were the halcyon days of the internet boom, uh, a mining company would come through. And I remember repeatedly thinking to myself with absolutely no interest in any of these uh, pitches, do we even mine things anymore? Is this a, still a business? Like, and, and it was, I think, also colored by the fact, that, particularly at that time, most of the people running those companies uh, were older. And just to the way cycles work, uh, you know, it was it was sort of a business that had lost a lot of popularity in, in the years leading up to it and, and seemed uh, to a casual observer, a layperson such as myself, uh, to have lost relevance as well. Uh, you know, it was all about the Internet and the dot-com boom and productivity from applying different technologies and innovations. Uh, why do we still dig holes in the ground kind of thing? So that, that was my first impression and, and uh, exposure to the mining industry. But then uh, as the, uh, as the uh, market changed uh, and uh, we went into a commodity cycle starting in the early 2000s, uh, as an investor, I, I had to take notice. And I started to learn more about these businesses. And I saw what was happening with the demand boom coming out of emerging economies, China and India in particular, but really around the world. And also the really interesting supply dynamic, uh, where you had a whole bunch of factors conspire, uh, improved deficiencies from technology, uh, additional recycling, stockpiles coming from uh, that were accumulated and built up uh, in the former Soviet Union, uh, which which lasted for years and years and contributed a significant amount of supply to various base metals and other commodities. All of those things sort of uh, intersecting at the same time, stockpile depletion. Uh, a lack of capex, a lack of discoveries, a lack of exploration, and a boom in demand all hitting at the same time as as these things often do. And, and you had this boom in commodity prices and an explosion in value creation for shareholders of mining companies. So particularly being somebody in the investment business uh, running uh, investment funds in Canada, uh, very much a resource uh, sort of uh, focused kind of country, or, or one with a resource background and uh, expertise anyways, that was a lot of what I focused my time on as an investor. And, and you could say uh, I, I got interested and in, in, in enamored and in, in fascinated with the, the market, with, with the mining market. Uh, my journey to gold was a little bit longer. Uh, I still did not have much interest in gold. I really did not understand or appreciate its role as a monetary asset. And so through those that that mining boom and the zeros, where yes, gold went from 250 to to almost 2,000, of course, in that run up, I was uh, primarily interested in base metals, in uh, uranium, uh, in coal, uh, other bulks, iron ore, etc., uh, and focused my investments and, and my time there. 
but uh, it was really in 2007, 2008, uh, where again, it was, it was, uh, I was forced to do so as an investor to really understand what is happening on a macroeconomic level. What does all this mean? What, and, and what is the effect of monetary policy? Uh, and what is, how does the system work? Uh, you know, I had, uh, a person who spent uh, all these years working in the investment industry, surrounded by all this information. And I can say uh, with, uh, with all due humility that I, I realized I really did not understand how the system worked. And to this day, uh, I'm still a learner. I, I really still trying to figure out how, the, how it all ties together, uh, who's pushing the buttons and pulling the levers that matter. And what is that? How does that percolate through the system? But it was really then that I, I, I came to realize that no, gold is not a shiny rock or, or metal as it actually is. Um, it's something that is unique uh, from a physical and chemical perspective and has played this role for a very long time. And uh, even in this digital future is going to continue to have a role that's very important and is uh, not understood even by people like me who in theory are spending all of their time trying to understand things like this. Uh, and, and I could tell you, even to this day, uh, I think the more educated uh, in a conventional sense uh, and uh, intellectual in a conventional sense, conventional sense, uh, the person is you're speaking to, the more likely you are to be laughed at uh, for talking about the role of gold uh, in the future. Uh, but that's that's been my journey. It really started with, uh, you know, mining for me started in the early zeros with that mining boom as an investor. And then 2007 and eight, starting to appreciate the role of gold and that that it was also a huge opportunity. And then after selling my investment business, uh, that gave me the opportunity to uh, start some other businesses and sort of jump on some opportunities that I've been thinking about uh, for a long time, in particular, starting a gold business. That would give me as an investor and, and large shareholder and ultimately all the other people that I brought in and got involved, uh, an opportunity to participate uh, in a very focused way in what I believe would be a, a, a huge revaluation in precious metals, gold and silver specifically, uh, and, and create a lot of value for myself and, and for other shareholders. That's really the genesis of Golani Gold. So I started that company in 2010. Um, with a deal to acquire a uh, non-core asset from a company called I Am Gold, uh, a great Canadian uh, mid-tier to almost major-sized gold company. Uh, one of its first production assets was the Mupani Gold Mine in Botswana. And uh, with the growth of the company throughout the 2000s uh, and, and that asset getting on in years, it became non-core to them on a couple fronts. It was geographically isolated in their portfolio. Uh, but also uh, scale-wise, it didn't fit, uh, producing 40-plus thousand ounces a year to a company that was producing about a million ounces a year. Uh, it was just too small. It didn't make their cutoff, uh, no matter what they, they could see themselves doing with that asset going forward. So it was put for sale based on historical relationships. I was given a shot uh, at doing a deal with them and in a very constructive way, uh, carved out a deal which closed in 2011. And that, and that was the beginning of our company. Uh, Galani Gold uh, came into existence through the acquisition of the Mupani Gold Mines in Botswana, uh, August 2011. And uh, that, when we acquired it, had about an 18-month uh, operating life ahead of it, uh, according to all the numbers. And here we are uh, almost now, exactly 10 years later. Uh, and as we've been saying for about the last five years, we've got a good three years ahead of us. 
so we transitioned that from an open pit operation to underground about six years ago, and we continue to extend the life there. And that's really been sort of the, the engine that's kept us going over these 10 years and allowed us to now do two more acquisitions uh, under our own steam for the most part uh, and uh, build up the team. And as I like to say, put the band together and uh, create a company now that I think has an interesting and growing portfolio to really be a, a levered uh, way to participate in this uh, upcoming precious metal cycle. Yeah, um, interesting, interesting career. And by taking that year out, you end up here. I wonder, I wonder where you would be by not taking that year out, how, how different your journey could be. I, I I might be uh, I might have uh, a thick pair of glasses on and be teaching a <laughs> calculus somewhere. So uh, I I don't I, I I think about it often, like the significance of little decisions, uh, and uh, you know, so so many major uh, plot twists in my in my life and career as, as all of us have experienced have occurred with uh, some guy I met at a bar or <laughs> yeah, yeah. A a random person that uh, that that came into my life uh, that that really uh, caused a direction change. So, yeah, uh, great question, and, and uh, I, I love to think about it myself. Yeah. Um, so, why don't you give our audience an overview of uh, Glen Gold as as a company, um, and I suppose more in today's um, present environment. Um, maybe backtrack a little bit, and also I suppose looking at what you're potentially looking to do in the future. Absolutely. And I'll let me preface it with, um, I think we have a bit of a different approach. Uh, I guess a lot of people say that, but uh, I think their last 10 years, we, we've actually done it. And uh, most of most of the fruits from that labor are ahead of us. So we'll have to see if, if this was a good strategy and, and we've been the right guys to execute on it. But our strategy has really been to look at things um, uh, from an opportunistic basis and say, look, um, you know, industry like this, uh, every cycle looks different. And if we look at what worked really well in the last cycle, the, you know, for gold, so let's say starting in 2001, 2002, uh, when it really started to bottom and move uh, higher, the, the companies that created a lot of value um, for themselves and their shareholders uh, a lot of it was like big open pit deposits that uh, discoveries that were made in the 90s or perhaps even 70s and 80s and were never exploited for a number of reasons. The grade was too low. The jurisdiction was too bad. Uh, capital markets weren't there at the time. All those factors uh, combined to have this huge pipeline of undeveloped projects going into that cycle. It, and, it, and it was diverse. So they were heap leached. There were low grade, big tons, there were high grade, low tons, stuff all over Africa, uh, Central Asia, former Soviet Union, all sorts of interesting stuff all over the world. And capital markets showed up, the commodity price moved, lots of money was thrown at it. Uh, stocks went up, stocks went down, but those assets got developed. And by the time we were hitting the peak of the cycle, that pipeline had really been drained. And despite billions, tens of billions being thrown at expiration, more than it's ever been thrown at expiration, and more technology that's ever been thrown at it, the discoveries just didn't come through the way they did in, in decades past. So we show up now, Let's you can pick your starting point for this cycle. Maybe it was the bottom was in 2015 or 16. Maybe you'd argue it was 2018. It doesn't matter. We show up at this cycle, 
And that pipeline is tiny. And we look at how, how are you to create value in this? Uh, we think uh, it's going to be a real challenge for the very large producers. Uh, they have this, it's always been a challenge for them to replace their reserves and, and deal with that. But with this shrunken pipeline, uh, they are moving laterally and, and through M&A as opposed to trying to find uh, particular projects in development or, or do it organically. Very hard for them. The, the, the projects just aren't out there. Uh, we can all do the math on that and figure it out. It's, it's a real struggle for them. Uh, and so, yeah, they're generating huge amounts of free cash flow now, which is great for the industry. It's great for their shareholders. Uh, but are they able to replace reserves? Um, it, it, it's it's going to be a, a different sort of challenge this, this cycle. So we've come at it a different way. With, uh, and I think the first uh, asset that we took on in Botswana is a great example. Uh, the mill and all the associated infrastructure that we inherited when we acquired that, uh, you would never build that right now for the scale of the operation that we have. Uh, undepreciated book value of those is going to be on something on the order of 80 to 100 million dollars. Uh, the operation this year will do just shy of 30,000 ounces of production. It would be a big stretch to justify it. Maybe you could with uh, $2,000 gold, but if gold was 1,200, you just wouldn't do it. So, but we had it. It was there. It was built by somebody else. Um, that that was a legacy asset. Uh, everything was permitted. Uh, you had tailings. You have a management team. You have relationships at all the relevant levels of government. It's a living, breathing uh, animal, like a beast that we took on, not a cold start. It was a hot start. It was, it was running, in fact, not a start at all. And there is huge value to that, in, I think, in the mining industry more than any other industry that I am aware of, to having all that infrastructure in place. And infrastructure doesn't just mean buildings and equipment. It means all those other things, permits access to water, et cetera, et cetera. So many moving parts to mining. Uh, the value of having that in place is a multiple of what it costs to do it because you also have time as a huge variable in there and risk. You don't always get things permitted uh, and they often do go wrong. So if, you're, if you've got all those things in place and you're showing up at the end of it, uh, if it costs $100 million to build, it may be worth $300 million. Uh, because of all the all the walls of worry and walls of risk that you climb to get there. Financing risk is another one too, of course. Uh, it's not always possible to finance these things. So our approach has been, hey, is there some opportunity for us where if we're looking at uh, 300,000 ounce a year um, open pit projects in a decent jurisdiction, we are not going to get that project. Uh, we're not viable competitors for it. We're not good. And, and if somehow we could, uh, we'd love to have one. Uh, we're probably going to have to pay so much for it that is it really going to create value for us anyways? Let's instead, is there an opportunity for us to look at op opportunities where it slips through enough cracks uh, that the price is uh, different, the opportunity is different, uh, that we can leverage the existing infrastructure that's available to us, that we can make outsized returns for ourselves? And I think um, what we've done at our last two transactions, in fact, what we did with our first, exemplifies exactly that. So Botswana was supposed to shut down in 18 months as an open pit operation inside a very big company, uh, managed like it's, and it's a great company. There's nothing wrong with the guys who owned it before, uh, fantastic people at all levels, but a big company. Uh, 
it, we take on that operation, it went from about uh, fourteen dollars to $1,500 an ounce operating costs. We've got that down to about $1,050. Uh, and we went out and did the hard yards and extended the life. We discovered 20,000 ounces here, 30,000 there, 5,000 next to the mill. Uh, we transitioned it to underground. And that was an operation that that's contributing almost most of that 30,000 ounces a year from that uh, underground operation, just too small for I am gold or anybody. There's no, it was smart of them to sell it smart of us to buy it. Sometimes transactions are win-win and, th and that's a great example of one. Uh, so we took something, you know, I don't want to say another man's trash. It wasn't trash, but uh, something that didn't fit for somebody else. That was a great fit for us. Next acquisition for us, galaxy in South Africa. What did we do there? A uh, million and a half ounces, roughly, resource, but it's in South Africa, which some people uh, will shy away from. Uh, underground, again, some people just want to do underground. Uh, relatively small operation. Uh, we're on a we're exiting this year at a run rate now that we've got it going of twenty three or twenty four thousand ounces a year. We'll eventually scale that up uh, over the next three or four years to fifty to sixty thousand ounces, but still small in the pantheon of global gold mines. Uh, and the final, um, the, uh, the, the, the final uh, check mark against it is uh, it's a highly refractory ore. Uh, so metallurgical challenges uh, right across the board on dealing with that. But we were able to buy that for um, uh, effectively uh, a few hundred thousand dollars uh, of cash and uh, the assumption of a bunch of debt uh, and, and, a, and a small uh, share issuance as well to the existing holders. It was a private company that was in financial distress held by South African investors. So what have we done since in the five years that we've owned it? Put in a new mill. Uh, we expanded the resource from 1.5 million to now 2.4 million ounces, uh, all categories, huge, huge lift. And, and we'll continue to increase that. Uh, we've uh, we've uh, put in an edit uh, to the main ore body uh, that allows us to continue with the same style of highly mechanized underground mining that we do in Botswana, exact same mining methodologies. In fact, uh, mostly the same people involved uh, running both. Uh, and we've done all that um, largely under our own financial resources. So uh, primarily with our own cash flows from Botswana and some debt that we've taken on uh, against the South African operation to fund that. We've completed all. We're now actually producing gold, and now we're we're talking about uh, that we paid. We basically took a few million dollars of debt on, uh, and have an operation with 2.4 million ounces of resource that uh, this year uh, will produce thousands of ounces. But uh, in the you know the next several years, we'll have it up over 50,000 ounces of a year. Huge, huge return for us, uh, company maker. Uh, but you could see. Not even today with $2,000 gold, most people would not uh, take two looks at that asset. Last transaction, very recent, just closed last month. Uh, I think you'll 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 appreciate this sounds very this similar. Uh, bought a past producing mine, underground, mill and uh, facility in place, uh, went uh, into care and maintenance in 2013 due to the collapse in commodity prices and the company had too much debt. And uh, one of the lenders uh, took it over, uh, restructured, got rid of all the debt, all the obligations, kept uh, cleaned up the company from a corporate perspective, uh, kept all the facilities in excellent condition and put it for sale. 
But this is an asset that is that once it's back up and running, which which will be relatively soon, uh, we'll do eight hundred fifty thousand to a million ounces of silver a year, and about uh, uh, average about uh, fifteen or sixteen thousand ounces of gold a year. Uh, so you could say on a silver equivalent, about a million and a half ounces of silver, or on a gold equivalent basis, uh, 24,000 ounces a year of gold. Fantastic, super profitable at today's uh, gold prices. We can be in production literally in 2022. Uh, we have the mill, everything's permitted, a minimal capex to restart. But again, how many groups uh, are, are have the ability to operate a mine, especially an underground mine, uh, but also uh, we'll look at something that's 25,000 ounces a year of production. It's too small. Uh, but for us, uh, with 30,000 ounces coming from Botswana, uh, and scaling up to 56 to 60,000 ounces a year in South Africa, that's a huge contribution for us. And also uh, does some other things for our portfolio. We, we've loved operating in Botswana and South Africa for the last 10 years, uh, but uh, we're, we're always tagged with a, an Africa discount. And we're always asked a lot of questions about risks of operating there. Uh, those are two actually great countries to be mining in, uh, particularly Botswana. Um, but, uh, it doesn't change the fact that uh, New Mexico, United States is a tier one mining jurisdiction, full stop. So that is a great uh, diversification for us and a great third leg to the stool. Uh, but really, it was more, I think the bigger thing for us was we didn't set out to like, let's buy something in America or let's buy something in uh, Canada, Australia, America, get get the heck out of Africa. Not at all. Uh, we were looking bottom up for what kind of asset and opportunity checks those boxes for us where we can create huge amounts of shareholder value by de-risking it on the on the timeline uh, on the risks of things like permits which are just going that risk is just going up and up and up with the more focus on ESG and environment uh, and do something where we can do most of the we cover most of the financial requirement under our own steam so uh, half of the uh, the consideration for the asset, and all of the capex required to put it back into production, we're comfortable. We can fund off our own balance sheet. Uh, so if that was a three hundred, again, we'd love a three hundred thousand ounce a year open pit operation in Nevada or some some great place like that. Uh, but um, if we if we had something like that, it would be a huge financing uh, task. We'd be up to it, and and that'd be great. But this is one where we it, the financing is de-risked. We don't have to go to the market. We don't have to worry like you know. Are they going to be there for us? We can we can deal with that under our own steam and just take that huge risk factor right out of the equation. Uh, and, and that's really what our focus is as a company. The other thing that maybe led us to that, our capital structure is quite different. We were um, almost 60% owned by insiders uh, and immediate family members. Uh, now that's below 50% with a little bit of dilution around this uh, transaction. But I, I, don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I would say we've got to be uh, of any public uh, mining company, certainly one that's in production, we've got to have the, the highest or, or very close to the highest insider ownership uh, component of, of any such company. And that, that governs our thinking. Doesn't mean we're always going to be right. Uh, we may make uh, mistakes uh, uh, going forward, and, and we certainly made them in the past. But uh, you certainly know where our motivation is. Our motivation isn't to uh, get a better salary or uh, order a fancy wine at a company dinner. 
uh, its its to create value for ourselves, and not not in the uh, short term either. You know, it's not like we could uh, see any liquidity in our our personal investment. This this is a ten plus year time frame uh, for value creation, and, and that's governing all of our decision making. Yeah, um, I take it obviously you're out looking at M and A at the moment, um, and obviously for the foreseeable future. What would you say your main criteria is when you're analysing a project? And I suppose looking at your top three criteria, in maybe in order, um, that you would when you're analysing a project, what are the top key three attributes that you look for on that particular project? And what you have done in the past to move forward with with the um, assets that you have uh, purchased? Uh, so number one is uh, is it accretive? So uh, with, you know, if it was uh, 10,000 ounces a year of production in uh, on the far side of the moon, but it was going to be hyper accretive to shareholders that, OK, it made it past the first hurdle. Then uh, it, you know, we uh, I'll give you a specific example on that one. We saw um, two assets in the last several months, which were in the United States, uh, in many ways, similar to the summit. To mine that we just bought, uh, except larger resource, uh, potentially more production. But uh, so at, fa- at first glance, they look like more attractive opportunities with with more upside uh, and 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 more bang to it. Uh, but when you run the numbers and look at the capex required um, and the execution risk around it uh, and the time required to put those into production. Even though at first glance they look very similar, the uh, NPV, the net present value of the cash flows that we believe we could derive with those base case plans that we we looked at for each of each of those, um, it would it it wouldn't have been accretive. Maybe if our stock was trading at ten times what it is today, other stuff becomes accretive. But that that's hurdle number one. Hurdle number two is risk. Uh, so for I think. Uh, almost everybody involved on the senior team at Golani, um, I could certainly speak for myself, it's our main asset in life, our, our ownership in the company. So uh, our base case is always to do nothing, status quo. And uh, for example, we could have just stuck with uh, Botswana and South Africa, particularly our Galaxy operation in South Africa. I mean, we could really see that producing gold for decades and decades. And we've gone through the hardest part of Repermitting it, uh, putting in a new mill, putting in the big edit to get to the to the new ore body, uh, and we're in production. So, you know, we could we could coast off that uh, and, and probably coast for a very long time, and that wouldn't have been so bad. So that is that's always the base case. Is the easiest uh, you know, thing to do is nothing, and it's it's often the safest thing to do. It's not our first choice, but we have to compare everything against the baseline of what if we didn't do anything. Uh, so risk risk is always a factor. Uh, we are not afraid of jurisdictions. Uh, most of the management team, the CEO and CFO and myself uh, spent uh, significant parts of our career working in the Congo, for example. Uh, I've also worked in Liberia, Iraq, um, you know, challenging jurisdiction uh, you can you can name i've probably been there and and uh, done something on a professional basis um and and much of the management team is like that as well so those are all opportunities we will look at uh but they are risk weighted uh we will do something in new mexico before we're going to do it in mexico 
Uh, it's as simple as that. Yeah. But so that's uh, definitely criteria number two. And number three, I'd say is how does this fit within the company? And the most important parts of that are financial and uh, people. So we are, you know, we're, we're a growing company, you know, the, depending on commodity prices this year or next, we're going to cross the hundred million a year in revenue mark, but we're still small. Uh, we have a CEO, we have a CFO, a COO, uh, one chief geologist now spread across three assets. Uh, you know, we're lean and mean, uh, we're as lean and, and as mean as, as one could be. So we really do have to seriously consider, okay, how do we staff a new opportunity? Um, can we, can we use existing resources or is it totally new? Are we inheriting a team when we buy this? Uh, what, how does that fit in on a people basis? And, and, and we really have to, I mean, there's only so many hours in a day and so many days in a year. And when assets are here and there, uh, you got to factor that in. The other question mark about how does it fit in the company, and I talk about that criteria, is financially. So, for example, we bought um, this asset in New Mexico. And we have a contingent payment on commercial production. We also have some CapEx that we have to do there. We also have some additional expiration we want to do above and beyond that CapEx. So what does that mean for us as a company and our shareholders? Does that mean do we have to go to the market? Do, you know, it doesn't mean that's a bad thing. Maybe that's a great thing. Uh, but we have to understand what does it mean to the company? And, and again, going back to criteria number one, is it accretive? That's a big part of, of thinking about that. So. Uh, if if you ask me, what are the first three hurdles you got to jump over? Number one, is it accretive? Number two, what, do we understand the risk and, and do we accept the risk and we can manage it? And number three, how does this fit with us uh, as a management team from an HR basis uh, and then uh, also on a financial basis? Yeah. Um, obviously, you're from the finance background um, and you mentioned obviously going through your career you weren't necessarily involved in gold, but then you came across gold and you continue to learn about gold as a, as a asset. Um, I take it then you'd be interested in macroeconomics, currencies, et cetera. Um, so I wonder if you can just give us a, an overview of what you've learned, what you've developed, and I suppose what's happening in the world today um, and also, I suppose, how we can uh, actually protect ourselves. Um, I've gone through a similar journey myself because I've been involved in the mining industry in, in, from a recruitment perspective for the last 11 years. And it's not, it's probably only the last year and a half that I've actually got my, I suppose, fingers into understanding a lot more about the mining industry. Obviously, doing mining podcasts like this and speaking to a variety of different people. Um, my knowledge is now really getting more extensive. Um, and obviously I follow a number of different people uh, uh, around the macroeconomics, around various obviously precious metals and understanding finance a lot more than what I did 18 months ago. Um, so yeah, just wondering if you can give us a overview of your, your learning um, and I suppose what is happening in the world today around the whole financial markets globally um yeah just wonder what you, what you uh what you can tell us and what you've learned and, and uh i think that's a, gr a great question the, the first comment i'll make is i'm still learning and so and i think uh i i would uh i would put out there that um 
this is a chaotic and complex system. If I go put my mathematician's hat on and, uh, you know, you, we have this uh, impression there's somebody behind the curtains uh, pulling the levers and, and pushing the buttons. But, you know, they, they, they are not uh, magical people uh, with godlike powers. Uh, they are people with lots of education, experience, uh, access to information. And they also are trying to figure it out too. And they are also making lots of mistakes. Uh, they're also maybe acting with the goal in mind, which may not be consistent with exactly what they're saying. And let, let me take you a bit on my, because I've had probably a, a different journey than most on it too. Uh, with the, the family office that I joined and the company I ultimately became CEO of, I, I had a great privilege and opportunity to work with some great macroeconomic minds. So uh, on our advisory board, we had Paul Volcker, former chairman of the Fed, uh, Dr. Sidney Jones, former deputy secretary of the Treasury in the United States, Ken Curtis, um, former chief economist, Goldman Sachs Asia at the time, vice chairman of Goldman Sachs. And uh, directly in my office uh, for 12 years, I had the great pleasure of working with a gentleman named John Crow. Uh, and Mr. Crow was the governor of the Bank of Canada. Uh, and uh, Prior to that, I believe deputy head of the IMF, uh, you know, very senior roles uh, through a global uh, macroeconomic uh, organizations. So great, great opportunity for me to learn. Uh, I still, with all that, was not in the of gold. Uh, and I've continued to have a great, great access, uh, uh, you know, to learn from, from people like this over the years. Uh, but I, again, I can say from working firsthand directly with these people for many years, they are brilliant and they have uh, they're, they're just absolutely uh, uh, big brained, uh, uh, accomplished, uh, amazing people with a huge amount of knowledge uh, that should not be disrespected. But like I said, they are not they do not have godlike powers of premonition and, and uh, projection, and uh, they do not fully understand what's going on either. And I think that's an important premise for anybody trying to under wrap their head around this. So back to your question of, you know, what's your thought? What do you think is going on here? Uh, I think, again, because it's a complex and chaotic system, to use a mathematical uh, vernacular, uh, I think you have to keep it as simple as possible in trying to come up with any conclusions. And for me, the, the most simple conclusion is since um, really going back now 50 years uh, since uh, transitioning from the fail, what became the failed Bretton Woods system into the the sort of floating rate uh, currency system that we've uh, been on for uh, half a century now, and then accelerating in a very meaningful way uh, with the advent of the financial crisis and a bunch of uh, factors coming to a head in 2007 and ultimately 08, 09. Uh, we have been binging on debt. And the theory is, uh, simply put, we could smooth the economic cycle. Won't be so great at the top, won't be so painful at the bottom using all these monetary policy tools um, concocted mostly from guys with PhDs in economics from Yale. <laughs> but but that's the theory anyways. Uh, in practice, it's totally not worked at all. There's no evidence to suggest that's worked. Uh, what the evidence suggests is it's really benefited a very small percentage of people, myself included, by the way, um, in, in, in a massive way and hurt over 99% of other people. Uh, and then the retort might be, well, trickle-down economics, again, uh, another tangent for another day, but uh, that, that, has, that evidence has suggested that that is, uh, that, is a, that is false reasoning as well. 
So we've, we've binged on debt. In theory, it should not be a bad thing to use debt to smooth over the cycle. You're bringing uh, some growth uh, that you would have had or, or in the future, you're pulling it forward uh, using financial engineering uh, to, to smooth out some tough patches. But politics comes into play and nobody likes tough patches. Nobody likes down. We like up. We like good times. We like roaring 20s. Uh, we don't like 1929s or, or uh, depression 1930s. So let's just try and avoid those altogether and let's have good times all the time. And that's certainly what politicians would like. Uh, politicians who'd like to get reelected, uh, they don't want, want any bad times. And so the very simple conclusion I have is we've taken on a lot of debt. The, the transition to a completely floating rate system anchored by nothing um, but the good, uh, the good uh, will and uh, sensibility of the U.S. government and the policymakers in the United States uh, has let us do that and really facilitated it. All the financial engineering and instruments we've come up come up with uh, over the last many years have facilitated it. Uh, facilitated it, and uh, what we had, the situation we have now is mathematically uh, intractable. Uh, so we can point to well. You know, we came out of World War II and we had over 100% debt to GDP in the United States. Yes, true. Uh, and there are some parallels then. Uh, there are some things that are so completely different, though, as well. So it's hard to, hard to use that as a, a useful uh, comparison case as us coming out of this time. So what was happening then, you had almost all the debt was owned uh, internally. So it was the United States lending to itself, uh, people lending to the government. Uh, people lending to businesses, uh, businesses lending to government. Uh, where that's changed uh, in the last 50 years is you have this huge foreign uh, component of uh, outside ownership. You also, we went into this huge uh, demographic boom post-World War II. We also went into a huge peace dividend. Uh, we also had any number of other positive factors, huge productivity boom through continued industrialization and uh, mechanization, advent of computers, all that just kept pushing us forward in, in fantastic ways. Uh, that's those are factors that we those are those are uh, tailwinds we just don't have now. In fact, most of those are uh, reversed on us. They're now headwinds, for the most part. Japan's a great example of the demographic boom turning into a demographic bust, uh, and the, and that is what's ultimately ahead of us uh, in every country. Some sooner than others. So we, we, we don't really have the same playbook. Uh, we can't run the same playbook that got us out of that huge debt position uh, exiting World War II. What uh, the playbook that I think we're running, which is maybe the single most important thing to understand for our investment portfolios, whether it's your real estate, your, your bonds, your gold, or your equities right now, is what, what playbook are the central bankers running? What is the exit path from... Um, uh, the, the debt uh, situation that we're in, it's inflation. And, uh, you know, watch what I do, not what I say <laughs> kind of thing. Everything, it, but but they've, they've changed the narrative. It is what they're saying now too, is we need inflation, we need inflation, we're going to continue to support inflation. And we're getting inflation. And inflation is the way out of the debt problem. Uh, and and I go back to, uh, and, and the, the, the response to that may be, yeah, but surely they know that the you know continued uh, significant inflation is going to really hurt a lot of people, uh, a majority of the people, in fact. And I, I come back to a Star Trek reference there, which 
some people may be familiar with, others not. Uh, and, and the reference is called the Kobayashi Maru. And it's a scenario or test uh, where uh, it's really testing how do you behave or what do you do in a situation where every choice you make is going to be a losing choice? It's a question of how do you lose? Like, what do you do in a lose-lose scenario? And I think the lose-lose scenario here is, well, we could default on the debt. Uh, that's not a very good choice. The utter collapse of the system and the world as we know it. Uh, the U.S. simply cannot default on its debt. It's, it is, uh, in a financial sense, the end of the world. Uh, they can't confiscate debt. Uh, so, you know, cancel the debt owed to China or to Japan or whatever. It's, it's equivalent to defaulting. Uh, total destruction of the financial system as we know it. We can hope for the best and hope that productivity gains and the internet and artificial intelligence and uh, the you know good people's hard work will just grow us out of the, the debt and maybe throw in a little bit of austerity there and stop spending so much. You know, that could work. But uh, as I said, I, I would consider that uh, mathematically intractable, uh, you know, situation. It, it's, it is not, uh, everything's possible. It is not plausible. That, that is not a scenario that, that any sane person would try to uh, work towards. It's just not possible at this point. So that leaves you in this Kobayashi Maru lose, lose, lose scenario with uh, trying to inflate your way out. And I really believe that's our global playbook. That's what the central bankers are running to. That's what now the treasury departments um, or equivalent of major economies, uh, certainly in the EU, the United States and Japan uh, are playing towards in concert with their own respective central banks. And that's investable. We can, we can work with that if we work with that premise. And in that premise, uh, I would um, uh, presume that uh, interest rates remain very low. Uh, that uh, real rates get are which are now uh, increasingly negative will get more negative. Uh, equities, uh, in a broad sense, will probably perform, and uh, in, in, in one should look at equities that will perform best in an inflationary environment, and definitely some will and some will not. And also look at other assets that will perform in an inflationary uh, environment: uh, gold, precious metals, and uh, real estate, and in particular, what I call uh, center, I will use the Canadian term, apologies, real estate on center ice. So the, 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 uh, the high quality, uh, large and liquid, uh, you know, uh, mainstream kind of real estate opportunities. So uh, as opposed to highly speculative fringe stuff. So real assets, uh, real assets and ones that will participate in inflation. Uh, as to where, where's gold going to go? I can't tell you that. And I certainly uh, I, I don't have much respect for anybody trying to come up with a specific target. To me, the, the conclusion is the direction is up and the angle of ascent is high. Uh, and, and really, how do I come to the, those conclusions? My premise about the inflation being the base case and, and being the playbook for central bankers around the world. And also uh, looking back where it's been. So you had what could be called a blow off top now 41 years ago in 1980 on gold. Uh, that was uh, $800. Uh, if you take the inf official inflation statistics over the last 41 years, which I don't put much stock in myself, but it's a starting point, that'll land you uh, uh, for a potential blow off top if you mark top to top, uh, just inflation uh, equivalent, inflation adjusted equivalent is somewhere in the high 2000s. Uh, if you instead look at the expansion of the monetary base uh, over the last 40 years, 
uh, normalize that against the expansion in the base of gold outstanding. And there is one or 2% uh, added to the global gold stock every year through normal course production. Very little of it's actually consumed and depleted. Most of it's on people's wrists, wrists, necks, uh, in their safes and in, in, um, in uh, vaults and central banks and so forth. It, it's mostly still there. Uh, so if you take that that, that money supply growth uh, and focusing on the US dollar, normalize it for that gold production, you'll get something like $10,000 an ounce. Both of those numbers are moving targets though, because inflation is is happening and the numbers are getting bigger, even in the inflation in the official statistics, which, which aren't very accurate for any of us actually living in the real world. Uh, and that money supply growth is, is just, it's just uh, absolutely uh, a rocket ship at this point. So uh, where's gold going? I don't know, somewhere between uh, the high 2000s and 10,000. Uh, and that's a moving target. And that moving, both moving targets are higher. So gold's going higher and, it, and, and it's going to go there pretty quickly in my mind. Yeah, appreciate that. Um, obviously, yeah, that summary, that's, that's great. Um, and again, it's a long, similar to along the lines of what I've been learning as well. So um, I've got two more questions. Um, Obviously, you're an entrepreneur and you've been involved in the mining industry for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, if someone was in a similar position where you started off, um, what advice would you give them um, or any sort of guidance as to what they what they should be doing and how they how did you sort of start and get into this industry and then move to where you are today? What advice would you give sort of your younger self? Uh, so two things uh, come to mind immediately. Number one is people. So particularly for me, I, I don't have any background in geology. Uh, I'd ever worked directly in the mining business myself. So you need to work with people that have that knowledge and have that expertise. And for again, a combination of reasons, one, it sort of was choked out as a popular vocation for a very long time. The 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 pool of people who have that skill set is diminished. Uh, and now overlay that with uh, a hot market in virtually every type of commodity asset. Uh, and even, even oil and gas, again, uh, has, uh, in the face of all this ESG and environmental and carbon issues, um, almost inevitably <laughs> started to move up. So all of those are, are sucking up people. So you really got to find those one or two uh, people that you can trust who really have that domain knowledge and the relationships, uh, very small, tight-knit, I don't need to tell you uh, with your background, but small, tight-knit group of people around the world. Uh, and I find it funny if, uh, you know, I mentioned some of the exotic places I've worked over the years, and uh, it's it's kind of the same set of people that you bump into in all these circles. So it's often Canadians, often Australians, and, and people from the UK, uh, and very seldom encounter any Americans outside of America. Um, you know, relatively few uh, Europeans, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very concentrated small group of people uh, operating in these industries. And, and the further you get from the mainstream, the more concentrated uh, those pools become and, and, uh, uh, and the more you're bumping into the same people. So that's, that's certainly one thing that's absolutely critical. The second one is, um, and I've repeatedly made this mistake uh, in my career, even in in fund management, and uh, and then and then I replicated it in different ways over the last ten plus years as an entrepreneur starting different businesses, is 
uh, and it's easy for me to say this now, I guess, because I'm in a good position, but I think it applies to everyone, even somebody starting out. Uh, if you're taking something on, make sure it's worthwhile. And uh, it sort of contradicts what I was saying of us like looking for niche opportunities at, at Galani. But uh, I mean, Galani for me really moves the needle. I have a huge position in it. It really makes sense for me to throw myself at it and uh, do everything I can to make it work. Uh, and um, and it's it, it it's 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 worth it's worth my it's worth my while for sure. Uh, I, I've gotten into too many things in my career, which have distracted from the main show uh, and have, even if they worked out spectacularly, which occasionally they do, but mostly they don't, just didn't move the needle. So what did that accomplish? It, uh, it's, it was a time and energy uh, suck uh, and also impaired my ability to focus on my main show. And so I think if, uh, if I could go backwards um, 20 years, I would, I would, by a long shot, focus more on on the people I was with along the journey, uh, just both for uh, success, uh, but also enjoying the enjoying the ride as well. And, and number two, make sure I'm focused on things that that really matter, uh, and instead do one or two things really well, instead of doing trying to do one or two things really well and twenty six other things uh, when I can. It, yeah. And I, 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 it's almost daily after because, you know, interesting stuff keeps coming across the transom and my nature is, is like, let's do it. When do we get started? But <laughs> I want to do it. I want to do it. All. There's, there uh, is a time, there is a time and it should be more often to say, no, I'm not interested yes. and focus on what your, your main, main goal is, um, and turn and because like you said you're going to get too too many things coming coming to you um and the tendency is to say yes i'll take that on yes i'll take that and then next thing you don't actually get get anywhere so you're better off saying no more often than yes exactly and uh maybe even rephrase uh your initial uh statement there is like uh, no i'm not interested it's like I'm really interested, but no, <laughs> but not this time. <laughs> I was, was going to relay also a, a, a favorite line of mine, which uh, you know everyone who's worked with me uh, for any amount of time knows. Uh, hey guys, what if? And then uh, I, I get a lot of okay. What, what's he going to say now? Uh, what crazy, yeah. what crazy scheme does he have up his sleeves? Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, the the people who I work with uh, generally have figured out how to humor me on those and, and manage me through them. Yeah. So as a conclusion, what's the sort of short and medium um, uh, outlook, term outlook for uh, Gleamy Gold and also yourself? For, for Kalani, look, we've got uh, we've got three three pillars to the stool now. Uh, Botswana, we're just going to continue to produce. That's a mature asset. Um, that one, the, the contribution is very much tied to gold price at this point in time. Not, nothing left we can do on uh, costs. Our exploration is really just to keep extending the life. There's no fundamental change on the horizon there. Galaxy, we're still in execution mode, uh, ramp up. So uh, it'll be thousands of ounces this year, going to tens of thousands of ounces <clears throat> in 2022 and, and onwards. Uh, but I think the hard yards are done. We've already sort of to refocus our management team now onto New Mexico, the third one. And they're the spotlights on us. So we got to show that we can internally fund it, uh, 
staff it and uh, make uh, ounces of gold and silver out of that one uh, as fast as we can. So I think um, with all the with the, with us executing on those, we continue for the next several years uh, see a organic production increase uh, in gold. We'll also see starting next year the silver contribution come on thanks to the summit acquisition. And I think uh, what happens with that is uh, we get more critical mass. We, we show a larger revenue number. We can get our market cap up there, appeal to more investors at the same time as we start to get on with a more realization of a bull market that's happening in precious metals and what's happening with monetary policy around the world and what it means for gold. Uh, we can we can do a lot for investors. It's a, it's a great time to be looking at our company. Uh, for me personally, I, I'm very much focused uh, from a professional standpoint uh, on Galani and also uh, my renewable energy company, uh, which is in many ways quite a different business because it's uh, so low touch uh, with the renewable solar and wind in particular, you know, unmanned facilities. Uh, it's not a people business. Uh, it's, it's much more a financial engineering business. Uh, so it, it is lower touch, uh, but it's a huge area of interest for me. So something that uh, I, I definitely want to see uh, continue to succeed and grow uh, and, and hopefully do so in, in really innovative ways like we've done with Galani. Um, interesting jurisdictions and maybe, uh, again, we can't compete with the giant pension funds and insurance companies who are looking to get zero to five percent uh, annual yield. Uh, we, we just can't source capital at those those kind of costs of capital, uh, nor are we interested in trying to earn that kind of return for ourselves and our shareholders. So we have to be creative, uh, much like uh, the Galani uh, situation. We have to be creative uh, and find our own path uh, to value creation um, by doing things a little bit differently. Yeah. Ravi, really appreciate your time and um, giving us an overview of uh, obviously Galani Gold and um, giving our audience a um, um, I suppose some education around macroeconomics and what's happening in the world today. So I really, really appreciate your time. Um, if our audience wants to reach out to you, if they've got any questions, um, how can they go about doing that? Are you on a, on a, any social media um, channels? Uh, I am. I am not personally uh, active on social media other than uh, LinkedIn, where I'm easy to find uh, and message. Uh, or through my corporate email, uh, ravi, R-A-V-I, at galanigold.com. Okay. Yeah, no worries. We'll include those in the uh, show notes accompanying this podcast. So really appreciate your time again. Um, those that are listening, um, hopefully hopefully you've learned a lot. I certainly got a few points um, that, I, uh, that I t- I'm going to take away. And um, obviously a company, Galini Gold, and obviously they've got a, a lot of other prospects out there and obviously looking at developing more prospects and acquiring more assets so um definitely a company to to look just to sort of look out for so um really appreciate your time listening please share this episode uh, amongst friends family other people in the mining industry um again if you're looking at uh, watching this on the youtube channel appreciate if you can like below and share this episode so it um, goes to all far corners of the uh, internet and the and YouTube algorithms. Um, so everyone, so more people can actually listen to this uh, to this recording. So, like I said again, Ravi, really appreciate your time. Uh, maybe come on to the show next year or later this year and give us an update. Um, that'd be uh, you'd be more welcome to do that. I'd love to. Thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. And until next time, happy mining. 
Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.